But please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and I'm going to read the chapter from beginning to end, verse 1 through verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord. Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, Sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of God. Well, Paul is taking up another topic that the Corinthians have written him about. They want to know if it's okay for Christians to eat food that has been offered to idols. I think meat is particularly in view here, although grain or drink offerings may have been involved. And, and there's a dispute in the church as to whether Christians can eat such meat or not. And it's a fair question. It's an important question for the Corinthians. Life in the city of Corinth was very religious for everybody. This is foreign to us. Uh, this is hard for us to understand today, what this is like. Everybody in Corinth was religious, not just the Christians. Everybody. And all of life was steeped in religion and religious activity, whether it was public life or private life, political life, business life, social life, and, and what we would call church life. They're all intertwined. They're overlapped and they're intermingled. Remember that there were many temples in the city of Corinth. Okay? There, are, there are temples on every block. We might think that, they're, we might think that oh, well, they're just open once, once a week for worship, but it wasn't like that. They were open every day and for all kinds of activities. Worship, business meetings, family celebrations, social gatherings, political and civic events. People were always going in and out of temples for all kinds of reasons. You know, we might, we might think of them like the old New England town meeting house. If we were to go back to the 16 or 1700s, where the church met on Sunday but the town council met there on Tuesday, 
And the circuit-riding judge met there to hold court on Thursday. It was, it was the same place used for many things. And everybody in Corinth had multiple reasons on multiple occasions to go to a temple and have a meeting that was not a worship event for that idol. And yet, there you were, sitting in a pagan temple, being served meat. If there's a lunch or a dinner prepared in that temple, what are you to do? You see, there was, there was meat in the temple that was burned up on the altar. That's the deity's portion, right? We understand that. And then there's the meat eaten by the worshipers. That's kind of the solemn portion. But then, some of the meat was set aside for the temple to serve at these other non-religious events that took place during the week when, when somebody rented the temple for a birthday party. That's the restaurant portion. <laughs> People went there, and there was an event, and they ate. It was kind of like going to a restaurant. And then they would sell the rest of the meat to the local grocery store so that they could sell it to the public. That's, that's kind of the market portion. And so this is kind of how, how meat flowed from the, the farmer, meat from the farmer to people. So the possibility of eating meat that had been previously offered to idols was really just a part of everyday life. To avoid it completely meant to avoid everyday life in that culture uh, and be known as the guy. Oh, you're, you're that guy who won't go to business meetings because of the meat thing. Uh, you're that family that won't go to the wedding reception because of that food thing. You're the parents that won't take your kids to their friend's birthday party because of, because of the meat that's going to be served there. You're going to be those people. This would have a very practical and negative effect on you. Right? This is, this is like voluntary ostracization from society. It would have a negative effect on your business, on your friendships, on your civic engagement, on your family. People are going to change their opinion of you if you snub them in all these ways. So there's a real price to pay here. And there's a built-in reason to want to say it's okay. Isn't there? Now, Paul is going to take three chapters to address this topic, 8, 9, and 10. And in chapter 8, he's addressing eating meat offered to idols, and he's kind of limiting himself to that. In chapter 9, he's going to use himself as an example uh, of foregoing his Christian liberties for the sake of others. And then in chapter 10, he's going to take up this issue again and address the problem of idolatry itself. So Paul's answer is going to address the implications of eating meat offered to idols to the various people that that would apply to in various circumstances. That's what we're looking at in chapter 8. And it's informative from the beginning to note that Paul doesn't just say yes, and Paul doesn't just say no. Once again, his answer is specific to the situation in Corinth, which means, as with previous questions, it's complicated. It's complicated. There are a lot of things and issues and people involved. And so the answer has to be a little more nuanced. Their eating meat doesn't just affect them. It affects the believers around them. That's what we're going to look at in chapter 8. And, it, and it's going to even affect unbelievers around them. That's what we're going to look at in chapter 10. So the question about whether it is permissible or prohibited for Christians to eat meat offered to idols is attached to other questions. Like, how do we navigate our Christian lives in this pagan culture? What should our decisions within the realm of our Christian liberties be based on? 
And how will my behavior affect those around me? I mean, those are the kinds of questions we have. So, what is the Corinthians' problem? <laughs> We've been asking that <laughs> the whole letter, haven't we? What is, what is the problem with these Corinthians? Well, Paul sees the Corinthians' problem as much bigger and much more significant than the Corinthians do. They want to know about the meat. The problem isn't really with the meat. The problem is with the Corinthians themselves. See, there's another division in the church. As if we haven't examined enough divisions already, there's another division in the church. There's a group in the church, they probably call themselves the strong. And they're strong because they have this gift of knowledge. We have knowledge. You know how big the Corinthians are about their spiritual gifts. Well, they have this gift of knowledge. And what they know is that there is only one true God and that all of the pagan gods are not gods at all. So if meat is offered to nothing, it means nothing. The pagan idols, which are nothing, have no effect on the meat that's offered to them. Therefore, they're free to eat the meat that has been previously offered to idols. Because that, that's meaningless. They believe that eating meat offered to idols is within their bounds of their Christian liberty. We can choose to eat this or not. And as far as that goes, Paul seems to agree with them. The pagan gods, represented by idols, worshipped in temples, have no real existence. And nothing really happens to the meat that's offered to them. And this is, uh, this is the paradox of idolatry. In relation to God, these gods are nothing. But in relation to people, these gods mean everything to them. That's the paradox. And it's true in our day. That false gods and religions, world philosophies and ideologies are powerful with people. And they exercise great control in the world, even over Christians. But there's another group in the church, and they're called the weak. By the way, it's probably the strong ones who call them the weak ones. They call them weak because they don't understand yet that the idols are nothing. They are scandalized at the notion of partaking of anything connected to their former paganism. To eat meat offered to idols would defile their consciences, and to, and to sin against their conscience would destroy their faith. By the word, that word destroy is Paul's word. Now, there are, there are two things before we get started. We're not even started yet. Are you encouraged by that? There are two things before we get started that I'm not going to do this morning. I'm not going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There are some things about eating meat offered to idols in chapter 10 that, that overlap with chapter 8. But if I preach those this morning, I won't have anything to preach when I get to chapter 10. And that, you know, that'll, that'll leave me short. So we'll deal with the overlap when we get to chapter 10. Right now, I'm just going to preach chapter 8. Yay! Now, some of you say, well, Scott, surely you're going to take us to Romans chapter 14 and 15. No, I'm not going to go to Romans either. You know, the issue about meat in Romans is, is a clean versus unclean distinction. The dispute in Romans is a Jewish Christian versus Gentile Christian dispute. The problem in Romans is judgmentalism between these two parties, and it's a completely different context than in Corinth. And Paul's arguments about conscience are different there than, 
then his arguments are here. But I will, I will read one verse from Romans that applies here. And it's at the very beginning of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 14, verse 3. He says this, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God welcomes each. That's, that's a, a, just kind of a little leaning into what the Corinthians should be doing, but that they're not doing. You know, that applies here in Corinth as well as in Rome. But the Corinthians are divided on the issue, and the weak are judging the strong, and the strong are despising the weak. So who, who is Paul going to side with? Whose side is the apostle on? The weak or the strong? Well, he already agrees that the strong do have knowledge. And he agrees that their knowledge is accurate. There is only one God. And the pagan idols have no real existence. So, so Paul's agreeing with the strong, right? Well, in theory, he agrees with the knowledge of the strong. But he does not side with them. He sides with the weak. The question is, why? What is Paul's answer? Well, Paul's answer is that knowledge is not complete unless knowledge leads us to love. That's his message. That's his answer. It's not a direct yes. It's not a direct no. It's a, it's a knowledge is not complete unless it leads to love. You see, the knowledge of the strong has made them arrogant, Paul says. They're puffed up. They're thinking highly of themselves because they have knowledge that somebody else doesn't have. And when they demand their right, that's what they call it, to eat meat offered to idols, they're being unloving towards their weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. And in causing their weaker brethren to stumble and sin against conscience, the strong are themselves sinning against Christ. Now, I can't remember the last time I was offered meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. I don't know if you can remember the last time you were offered meat that was sacrificed to an idol. But what we all want to know is, how do we live as Christians in this non-Christian world? We all want to know how to pursue holiness while still having relationships with unbelievers and participating in, in normal everyday life in a pagan culture. And we all need to know what to do when, as believers, we come to different conclusions about how to best live out our shared faith so that we don't just go straight to division like the Corinthians do. So I want us to look at four important lessons that I think we can find in this chapter. And you'll see them on your sermon outline if you want to follow along there. They come under the heading of understanding that love is better than knowledge and that love is better than liberty. Go back to the first three verses of the chapter. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now you know by now that when you see quotation marks, as you do in this verse, if you're reading along in the ESV, that Paul is quoting what the Corinthians are saying. This is their slogan. This is what they're declaring. The strong in the church are boasting. 
all of us have knowledge. They're not speaking for the church. They're saying all of us, the strong ones, we possess knowledge. And Paul immediately recognizes that there's a, there's a problem with their knowledge. There's a flaw. You know, they think they've got a diamond. Paul says there's a really big black inclusion you know, of coal in there. Their knowledge has puffed them up. They have become arrogant. They think they're superior to their brothers and sisters who don't possess their same knowledge or their same level of knowledge. Now what's wrong with their accurate knowledge of God? What's wrong with it if it's accurate? It has not led them to love one another. They want so much to be super spiritual. They want so much to have something to boast in that having received knowledge, they think they're superior. See, the knowledge of God has two components, doesn't it? We, can, we don't separate them, but we can recognize them. Knowing God because you understand things about God and knowing God because you have a relationship with Him. When the Bible talks about the knowledge of God, when the Bible talks about knowing God, both those things are together. The two components are never meant to be separated. But even then, we don't boast because we know God. We boast because God knows us. That's what the Bible tells us to boast in. God knows us. We know God because He first knew us. We know Christ because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We love God in Christ because God first loved us in Christ. In knowing us, he made us that we might know him. So the knowledge that really matters is the knowledge of God that knows us. Here's the, here's the principle that Paul's bringing out. Knowledge, the true knowledge of God always produces love. Always. And so Paul tells these so-called strong ones that their knowledge is not complete. You imagine you know something, but you sort of don't. Because it has not led them to love the so-called weak ones. You imagine that you know something, but you do not yet know as you ought to know it. Your knowledge is half-baked. It's not done. Because the knowledge in you has not produced love in you. Now, Paul hasn't said anything about meat offered to idols yet. He goes straight after the hearts of these Corinthians with the gospel. You've missed the mark. Knowledge is not the goal. Love is the goal. So boast in this, that God knows you and that you love him. And that you love all your brothers and sisters who also love God. Boast in that. Here's the takeaway for us already. Do not let knowing God make you arrogant towards others and unloving towards your brothers and sisters. Don't let that happen. Pursue knowledge, but pursue love more. Receive the gift of understanding, but use it to love the brethren more. With, with knowledge, have love. With doctrine, have patience. Pick up in verse 4. 
Therefore, as to eating food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many idols, many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience is weak and is defiled. The Corinthians don't have a bad knowledge or a false knowledge. They have a true knowledge. And Paul affirms their knowledge that there is only one God and there are no other gods. All other so-called gods are not gods at all. Paul affirms all of these things. Good theology so far. The Corinthians seemed satisfied to know just that much. As long as they know that, it has a use for them. But Paul's not satisfied to just say that. He goes on and says, who is this God? Who is this God? God is our Father first. God our Father is the source of all things. And He is the one for whom we exist. But Boy, put that one in your head and it will really help you out. God is the one for whom you exist. What an arrogant and foolish thing to think that our knowledge of God is merely for us. To use, to our benefit. God has made himself known to us so that we can be transformed to live for him. That's much bigger than our our petty self-service. I mean, what is your purpose in life? God is my purpose in life. It is in Him that we live and move and have our being. My goal is to be what He calls me to be and to do what He calls me to do, and it's all for His glory. Right? That's what Paul lays out. It's not what the Corinthians are thinking about in increasing their spirituality. It's not how they're thinking at all. And and, and although the Corinthians would probably agree with that, but the Corinthians are not, they're, they're forgetting somebody, aren't they? I don't know if you've noticed through these eight chapters, but the Corinthians always seem to be leaving somebody out. They have no problem talking about God. They have no problem talking about growing in spirituality to serve God. But they regularly fail to talk about Christ. So Paul keeps putting Jesus and the gospel in front of them. Our one God is the Father and and our Lord who is Jesus Christ. This is a wonderful, this is a very strong Trinitarian statement that the Father and the Son are God. Lord is the Old Testament word for God. Lord is Jesus Christ. And and you're saying, well, but there's, there's no Spirit. Paul just spent chapters talking about the Holy Spirit. He hasn't gone away. He's just laying this on top of it. He tells them that Jesus created all things and that it is through him that we exist. Jesus is preeminent in creation and in his church, Paul writes to the Colossians. We're saved by Christ. We're sanctified by Christ. We're made one as Christ's body here on earth, the church, together, in fellowship with him. All these things he wrote at the beginning of this letter. And he is the one who has commanded us to love one another even as he has loved us and given himself for us. Right? And as I think about it, maybe as you think about it, 
doesn't the church in Corinth look like a church that has at least temporarily lost sight of Jesus Christ in the way that they're acting and behaving? If they would behold Christ, wouldn't they do better? Because they're not doing well. Not in a lot of ways. They're arrogant, though Christ humbles. They're using their spiritual gifts to serve themselves when Christ would have them serve one another. They're divided. When the one clear thing that Christ does is he unites. Think about how patient Christ has been with them in their ignorance. And yet how impatient they are with their so-called weaker brothers and sisters. We can be like that if we're not careful. We can be arrogant around brothers whose theology is less well-formed than our own. We can be impatient with sisters who haven't shed some habits from their former life quite yet. We can be dismissive of one another when we don't agree on every little thing and the way it's done in the church. We can do those things. But here comes the rub in the church in Corinth. Paul says, not all have this confident understandings that idols are nothing at all. Not everybody has that understanding. And it's not necessarily because they, they haven't been told so. The weak are most likely recent Gentile converts whom Jesus has saved out of all this pagan idolatry in the city of Corinth. Out of everything that comes with their pagan life and everything they did every day in their pagan society. And they've just now renounced all of their pagan ways. They're committed to Jesus. And now the so-called strong are telling them, well, it's all right to eat that meat. Sacrifice to idols. Even if you happen to be sitting in, in one of those idol temples, it's okay to do that. I mean, you see the, you see the problem, right? Those are completely opposite than what they've just done. Completely opposite to what they've been thinking. Completely opposite to what they've been experiencing. They remember their old life in pagan ways, and, and now they've got this new life. And these new friends? But they could be invited to the temple to have a meal, even for something that has nothing to do with worship in that temple. And apparently, some of them are. This is not, this is not, a, quiet, this is not a quiet contemplation of how the conscience works in the Christian. That's not what's happening in chapter 8. This is not a theoretical discussion that's happening in the church. This is real detrimental action that's happening as, Paul, as they're writing the questions and as Paul's writing back his answers. Remember how there were those that were divided over teachers way back in the first couple of chapters? Saying, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos. They weren't inactive. They were actively recruiting others to come be part of their camp. Remember how some believe that what you do with your body doesn't matter, so they were committing sexual immorality with prostitutes? 
They were telling the others to do that too. They were trying to persuade others to follow their same practice. You see, every division of the church in Corinth impacts the others in the church because everybody recruits them to their position. Remember how some believed that you'd be more spiritual by not gratifying the body in any way, so they condemned sexual intimacy within marriage. And because of them, what happened to others? Because of what they said, others divorced. And others were contemplating divorce. And some who wanted to get married were holding off and not getting married. They're, these are not just matters of belief, but more significantly, matters of action. Because each of these things is action-based. The, these divisions are activists, and they're, they're actively getting others to join in their practices. And that's happening here with these brothers and sisters. Look again at verse 7. This is currently taking place. Some are eating food that was sacrificed to an idol. Some of the weaker brothers are. And they're eating it as if it really was sacrificed to an idol. Because that's what they did when they were idolaters. For them, it's not a matter of theological knowledge. It's a matter of their real guilt and their real shame in their practice of idolatry before they came to Christ that has all come back to them. All of the so-called weaker brothers were being invited to all of the same cultural events that they used to be invited to. Business meetings, social gatherings, civic events, even birthday parties and weddings where meat was being offered, the meat that had been offered to idols was being served. And their so-called stronger brothers are encouraging them, yeah, go. Yeah, go. You don't have to give up your public life for this. You can, you're allowed to do that, so go. You can exercise your right to eat meat offered to idols. But when they did, when the weaker brothers did, all of the pain and all of the darkness, and all of the evil came flooding back, not to just their, their consciences, but to their consciousness, their real understanding of who they were at that moment in time. Their self-awareness as Christians was being overwhelmed by a self-awareness of being pagan again. Because they had gone back to their old ways, so to speak. Maybe you felt like that from time to time. Maybe there's a place you went when you were, before you were saved. And as a saved person, for some reason, at some point in time, you, you walk back into that place. And it all comes flooding back to you. And it just feels dirty. I'm not sure I can... I'm not sure I can ably describe this, what's happening to these weak Christians, but the best illustration I can think of, it's not a, it's not a perfect illustration, but, but it's one that I think might lend us some understanding. Imagine an alcoholic being miraculously saved by Jesus, and he swears off the drink. Because he lost everything alcoholism in his former life. He lost his wife, he lost his kids, he lost his job, he lost his house. But now he's content in Christ. But he considers drinking alcohol as scandalous. It's something that pagans would do. And then one of his new buddies at church, a strong Christian, tells him, you know, it's actually okay. 
to have an alcoholic beverage. It's, it's not prohibited. You can do that. And he says, come on, buddy, let's go, to, let's go to the sports bar so we can watch the game on TV. No harm, no foul. We'll just go, we'll watch the game, we'll have a beer. And, and because this Christian has encouraged him to go, maybe even drug him along with the gang, he goes. This former alcoholic, now Christian, goes. And even though his conscience, that's that, that's that little thing up here saying, this is right, this is wrong, tells him drinking a beer is wrong, because he's, just, he's been put in the group, he's been put in the place, it's all familiar to him. He's been told it's okay, and so he has a beer anyway. And two things are happening, I think. It pangs his conscience, right? It pangs his conscience because he's sinning against his conscience. That little voice that says this is wrong, even though the Bible does not condemn having an alcoholic beverage. And maybe even the next time he's invited to have a beer at a bar, he says no. That's a matter of conscience, our inner moral compass. And that's what we're thinking about when we read this. But I don't think that's exactly what Paul's describing here. Paul's not describing a little pang of conscience. He's describing a course of action that will destroy the weaker brother. That's what he says in in verse 11. He says, you're destroying the brother. That is... That is not a little pang of conscience. I've been doing quite a bit of reading and studying here, and more recent scholars in 1 Corinthians suggest that the word translated conscience is better understood to mean consciousness. Consciousness is what you're experiencing right now. What it is that I understand I'm doing, who it is that I am. You see, the weaker brother, or the alcoholic for that matter, his self-understanding that he is a Christian is experiencing an attack from his old self-understanding of who he is. When all of that pain and all of that guilt and all of that depression and shame of his former alcoholism come flooding back to him in real time. Yes, it defiles his conscience, but it also defiles his understanding of himself to be a Christian because here he sits where he used to sit. And so there's confusion and conflict and doubt that might even destroy him. Here's another takeaway for us. Not only do we need to be patient and allow brothers and sisters to grow in knowledge, but we need to be patient and understanding to allow them to grow in in conscience and practical living. A brother or a sister who's a former alcoholic may never take a drink again. And we would not call them weak, would we? We would call them wise. Because he's walking with God in his Christian liberty the way that works for him. Wisely. And the former idolater in Corinth may never eat meat offered to idols again. He may come to possess the knowledge that it is within his Christian liberty to eat meat offered to idols and never do it. Not because of his conscience, but because of of what it does to him experientially, what it does to him in his, in his very living consciousness, his understanding of who he is in Christ. I can't be in Christ and do that. That's what I did when I was not in Christ. So 
So the criteria for making decisions to exercise our Christian liberty is not just our knowledge, but even more so, our love for the brethren. So with knowledge, have love, and with doctrine, have patience, and with liberty, have compassion. Pick up in verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that it is this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Paul seems to indicate that the so-called strong are motivated, like, like all of these factions that we've looked at in Corinth, they're motivated with a desire to be super spiritual. They're, they're actually trying to, trying to pursue holiness. They genuinely want to be holy and think that applying their gift of knowledge by eating as much meat offered to idols as they can will make them more spiritual. So Paul says, food will not commend us to God. Food will not commend us to God. Which is a pretty astounding statement from Paul. A Hebrew of Hebrews and a Pharisee. See, the Jewish Christians in the congregation, they probably gulped when they read that. <laughs> food doesn't matter at all. Just the, way they, just the way they did when Paul said, circumcision and uncircumcision means nothing. And now he's saying, food Food doesn't commend us to God. I mean, Paul's conversion is complete, right? There is no need to continue in the old covenant dietary laws. Although, Jewish Christians are free to. But Paul is addressing the strong brothers by saying, God does not think better of you based on your diet. You're not gaining any holy points by proving to everyone that you have a right to eat food offered to idols. On the other hand, those weak brothers, they're not losing anything by not eating food offered to idols. So stop coercing them to do so. Just stop. Not only are you not accomplishing anything beneficial for yourself, you are actually doing something gravely detrimental to your brothers and sisters. The Corinthians are claiming their so-called rights but Paul says you have no right to tempt your brother to sin. In fact, you have a duty to show compassion in Christ's command to love your brother. You're not allowed to ignore your brother's weakness. You're not allowed to dismiss your brother and just practice your Christian liberty. You're not allowed to do those things. Paul is saying that on the day of judgment, on that day when we are commended to God, Food will not commend us to God. But your brother or sister may be destroyed by it and may not make it to that final day because of your actions. It may begin as a pang of conscience, but real damage is done to his identity as a Christian because you've encouraged him to return to his pagan practices. It's not just bad thinking that threatens our faith. It's bad acting. It's both. And it's that second one that Paul's really leaning on here. 
your exercise of your right may sow confusion and doubt. So with liberty, we must have compassion for our brothers and sisters. We must not let knowledge puff us up. We must not let our rights rule our liberty. Rather, we must make decisions with compassion towards one another so that love will build others up. Because love builds up. And so those who do have knowledge, those who are mature, need to have restraint, even sacrifice. The last two verses, beginning in verse 12. Thus, because of all of this, thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Once again, the irony is just palpable. These so-called strong brothers are boasting in their spiritual gift of knowledge, claiming their liberty from God, and the outcome is that they are actually sinning against Christ. I thought we were just talking about food here. (laughs) Can we just go back to talking about food, please? It's not about food. It's about people. And it's not about me. It's about how I treat others. That's where Paul's going. It's about letting go of my rights, sacrificing my Christian liberty, which I do have, for the spiritual sake of a brother or sister. The mature Christian knows that real spirituality is not about boasting in your knowledge or your rights. The mature Christian knows that true spirituality is about humility before God and humility before others. It's about love governing our behavior towards one another. Love trumps knowledge. Love trumps rights. And love governs our liberty. In chapter 13, Paul will say, If I have all knowledge, but have not love, I'm nothing. Love is patient. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. Love does not insist on its own way. And this love never ends because this eternal love of Christ is being built up in every believer in the church. You may think that you know some things, but the knowledge worth truly possessing is the conscience understanding that God knows you and loves you. That's the knowledge worth really having. And the evidence of that is that you love God and you love those for whom Christ died. And if you are here this morning and you do not, if you're here this morning and you, and you know that's not you, let me put it that way, then I want to appeal to you to admit that to yourself. You want to say that you're selfless and that you put others first, but you know that you don't. You're probably trying to love others more, but you're not, just not making any progress because you can't. And that may or may not bother you this morning. I'm not calling you to change yourself because you can't, 
change yourself any more than a leopard can change its spots. We've all tried that, and we can't. You need help from outside of yourself. I'm calling you to admit your selfishness and to admit just how much you don't ever want to sacrifice anything for anybody else. I'm calling you to admit that to Jesus. Because he's the only one who can bring the change that you need in order to live and to not be destroyed. Jesus is the Son of God who created all things and through whom you exist. He knows everything that's true about you. He knows what you don't want to admit deep down inside, that that you're the weak one. You know only what you want to know. You serve only yourself. And you know in your conscience that you're wrong. My friend, Jesus is the strong one who sacrificed himself on the cross for sinners like you and like me. Jesus has compassion for sinners who will come to him. And call upon his name for salvation so that you will not be destroyed. You see, there will one day come a day when Jesus comes to judge sinners like you. But today is the day that Jesus is offering himself as the sacrifice for your sins against a holy God. He was crucified on the cross to bear the sins of those who love him. So I'm appealing to you this morning. I'm calling you out this morning. I'm begging you to turn to him and love him. And you will be known by him. He has sent his Holy Spirit to bring the knowledge of the mercy and forgiveness and salvation to all who turn to him. So humble yourself. Push aside those worldly things that you have idolized and love him, and be made, be known by him. That's the word of God for you this morning. For the rest of us, we too are to look to Christ as the source and example of sacrificial love. If we are called to do this, and we are, then we're to look to Christ. When we look to ourselves and what we know, we tend to serve ourselves, don't we? We should wake up each morning and look to Christ who gave himself for us and who has commanded us to love one another as he has loved us. This is our major orientation to living in this pagan culture. Love one another. Second, remember your obligations to the stronger and the weaker brothers and sisters among you. You see, because we are all the weaker brother or the stronger sister on various issues at various times. We, we fit in these categories, depending on what they are, at different times. You see, the nature of the weaker brother is that he thinks he's the stronger brother. He's the stronger brother, and it's the stronger brothers who's sinning although the stronger brother's not sinning. The stronger brother thinks the weaker brother's stupid because he doesn't know that he's not sinning. You see? This will always exist in the church. It's always something we have to fight. And so we need to remember Paul's words from uh, Romans chapter 14. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. 
And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God welcomes each. Lastly, we need to be careful of what, what we think we know. But be sure to pursue love. You know, some have twisted Paul's words to say that we shouldn't pursue theological knowledge or biblical doctrine. We should just love. Just love. Well, that's both foolish and dangerous. Theology is simply what we know about God. Doctrine is placing what we know about God into, into categories so that we can understand them and distrust them. These are good and necessary things. It is our motives that are amiss. You don't want to be puffed up and arrogant because we know things that others don't. We don't want that. Do we want to be a theologically robust church? Yes, but we don't want to be arrogant. And it's our practice of what we know that goes astray. We forget the prime directive. Love God and love one another. Love God and love one another. Uh, I guess I would, I would say it this way. We should pursue knowledge in our pursuit of love. How's that? How's that for wrapping up chapter 8? We should pursue knowledge in our pursuit of love. Why? Because love builds up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you for your great love with which you have loved us in Christ. Father, we thank you for this letter that Paul has written to the Corinthians. Because although we would maybe perhaps never be tempted to eat food offered to idols, we are certainly tempted to be arrogant. We are certainly tempted to be thoughtless in the way that we navigate our Christian lives in this pagan culture. It's certainly easy for us to get puffed up. And so we thank you for these words and we pray that you would humble us. That you would cause us to love one another and to love you more. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.